Section 35 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4, Brazil. Chapter 12, the 18th century. Montevideo was founded in 1726, and became the nucleus of the Spanish settlements, which have grown into the mother country of Uruguay. Except Colonia, the only Portuguese settlements south of the 25th degree were the towns of Santa Catarina Island, the unimportant village of Laguna on the coast plains, and the scattered ranches of a few adventurous Paulistas on the plateau. The founding of Montevideo drew the serious attention of the Rio government to the valuable country between the Plate and Santa Catarina. The Paulistas had thoroughly explored the plains and found them swarming with cattle. The chief obstacle to the foundation of a military post as a nucleus for the settlement of Rio Grande and eastern Uruguay was the lack of a harbor on that sandy coast. When the next European war broke out, in 1735, the Spaniards again besieged Colonia and established forts and settlements along the Uruguayan coast, from Montevideo to the present Brazilian border. In 1737, the Portuguese authorities sent an expedition to take Montevideo, which failed. On the way back, the Portuguese built a little fort at the only entrance, which gives access to the great series of lagoons which run parallel to the coast for 250 miles north of the southern Brazilian frontier. This is the site of the present city of Rio Grande do Sul. A few years later, a considerable number of settlers from the Azores Islands were introduced, who engaged in agriculture along the fertile borders of the Great Duck Lagoon. In 1750, Spain and Portugal made an attempt to reach an amicable and rational agreement about their South American boundaries. Up to that time, Spain had stubbornly claimed the territory as far north and south as Santos, and Portugal was even more unreasonable in asserting her exclusive right to the coast as far south and west as the mouth of the Uruguay. The Treaty of 1750 virtually recognized the Usipacidetis, Portugal agreed to give up Colonia, and the boundary to her possessions and those of Spain was drawn between the Spanish settlements in Uruguay and the Portuguese settlements in Rio Grande. The seven Jesuit missions in the interior, 200 miles to the south, were abandoned by the Spanish government. Spain deliberately ceded these tens of thousands of peaceful and prosperous civilized Indians, and even agreed that her troops should assist the Portuguese in the cruel dispossession. The Indians fought desperately and unavailingly. But this iniquitous provision of the treaty was the only part of it which was ever carried into effect. Spanish public opinion protested. The boundary commissions could not agree. Portugal put off the surrender of Colonia on one pretext or another. And in 1761 the treaty fell to the ground and all the questions were left open. That year Spain and Portugal became embroiled on opposite sides in the Seven Years' War and the Spaniards from Buenos Aires invaded the disputed territory in overwhelming force. Colonia was taken, and in 1763 the Spanish government led his army against the Portuguese settlements in Rio Grande. The fortified town of Rio Grande fell, the superior Argentine cavalry drove the Rio Grandenses back to the coast, and the Portuguese territory was reduced to the northeast quarter of the state. The flourishing farms of the Azorean settlers were laid waste, and from this invasion dates the adoption by the Rio Grandenses of pastoral habits. The Treaty of Paris put an end to the war in Europe. The Spaniards ceased their advance, they restored Colonia once more, but retained their conquests in southern Rio Grande. 
The Rio Grandenses made good use of the breathing spell. They cared little whether there was peace or war in Europe, and four years later made a desperate effort to recapture their old capital and regain their farms in the south. Disavowed by their government, they still kept on fighting. Soon they made a regular business of raiding the territory occupied by the Spaniards. The beef they found on the plains was their food. They were always in the saddle, and soon became the finest of irregular cavalry and partisan fighters. The Spaniards retaliated by invading northern Rio Grande, but never succeeded in routing the Rio Grandenses from their last strongholds. In 1775, the Brazilians were reinforced from São Paulo and Rio, and took the aggressive, and the following year recaptured the city of Rio Grande. The Spanish government took prompt steps to avenge this loss. A great fleet was sent out, Santa Catarina was captured, an army of 4,000 men was on the march up from Montevideo to sweep the Portuguese out of all southern Brazil once and for all. But in this crisis, European politics again saved Brazil from dismemberment. France and Spain were forming a coalition against England in the War of American Independence. Spain wished to have their hands free and to isolate England. The Spanish fleet and army were at the gates of Rio Grande, where the Treaty of San Ildefonso was signed in 1777. The Portuguese definitely relinquished Colonia. Uruguay and the Seven Missions remained Spanish. But most of the southern Rio Grande, which the Portuguese had lost in 1763, as well as Santa Catarina, was restored to them. The thirty-four years of peace which followed in Rio Grande were employed in steady growth. A craze for cattle raising set in, and the plains were divided up into great estancias, which were distributed among the governor's favorites, or those who had distinguished themselves during the war. Substantially, the entire population engaged in the cattle business. The Rio Grandenses and their cattle multiplied so rapidly that they spread out over the western part of the state, which was still Spanish, and to the south. In 1780, the curing of beef by drying and salting was introduced, which permitted its shipment and afforded a stable market. After the great gold discoveries in Minas, during the late years of the 17th and early years of the 18th centuries, the prospectors ranged north from Sabara along the great Backbone Mountains, finding washings at many places in North Minas and Bahia. By 1740, the fields in Bahia were producing 50 to 100,000 ounces a year. As early as 1718, an expedition had penetrated 1,500 miles to the west and discovered good placers on the plateau where the headwaters of the Madeira and the Paraguay intertwine. This was the beginning of Cuyaba and the state of Mato Grosso. In ten years, a million five hundred thousand ounces were taken out from these diggings. A little later, still other fields were discovered further west on the Madeira watershed. The miners at the gold camp of Tijuca in North Minas had noticed some curious little shining stones in the bottom of their pans and thought them so pretty that they used them for counters in games. Soon a wandering friar who had been in India recognized them as diamonds. This occurred in 1729 and the field thus opened up supplied the world with diamonds until the discovery of Kimberley. In the years from 1730 to 1770, five million carats were taken from the original Diamantina district, and the deposits are still second in productiveness only to those of South Africa. 
The diamond region was at once declared Crown property, and a deadline drawn around it which none except officials were allowed to cross. In 1716, an exploring expedition ascended the Madeira, and in the years following, the Tocantins, the Araguaya, the Rio Negro, and the principal tributaries of the upper Amazon were navigated. The Jesuit settlements in the Amazon Valley continued to flourish. While the interior and the south were expanding rapidly, the coast provinces were relatively declining. The growing competition of the West Indies reduced the price of sugar. During the 17th century, Brazil had furnished the bulk of European sugar consumption, selling her product at non-competitive prices. But the growth of the English and Dutch colonial empires brought into the field competitors who possessed as good a climate and soil and enjoyed the inestimable advantage of better government. Portugal's vicious and narrow-minded colonial system was not changed until Brazil's competitors had so far passed her that she has never since been able to make up lost ground. The wealth from mines and taxes that Brazil poured into the Portuguese treasury was squandered by the dissipated bigot John V. When he died in 1750, he left Portugal in a bad way, and though Brazil had managed to grow in spite of mismanagement, the outlook was discouraging. The Spaniards were threatening the new settlements in the south, Sao Paulo had been depopulated by the migration to the mines, Bahias and Pernambuco's sugar and tobacco industries were decadent, in Ceará and Piauí the golden days of the cattle business had passed, Maranhão and Pará had stopped short in their development, and their spread into the interior had been cut off by the Jesuits. Contemporary documents prove the horrible corruption. From ministers of state down to the humblest subordinate, every official had his share in the pickings. The farmers of the revenues openly paid bribes and might exact what they pleased from the taxpayers. All trade except that with Portugal was forbidden, and this was hampered in a hundred ways. Salt, wine, soap, rum, tobacco, olive oil, and hides were monopolies. All legal transactions were burdened with heavy fees. Slaves paid so much ahead. Every river or a road was the occasion for a new toll. The exercise of professions and trades was forbidden, except on the payment of heavy fees. Anything that could compete with Portugal was prohibited altogether. Taxation shut off industrial enterprise at its very sources, and many of the worst features of the system then put in vogue have never been discontinued. The governors and military commanders interfered constantly with the administration of justice in favor of their friends and favorites. They accepted bribes for allowing contraband trade and permitting the immigration of foreigners. They misappropriated the funds of widows and orphans. They ignored the franchises of municipalities. They imposed unauthorized taxes. They forced loans from suitors having claims before them. They obliged free men to work without pay. They forcibly took wives away from their husbands. They impressed the young men for the wars on the Spanish border required every able-bodied man to serve in the militia, and commonly practiced arbitrary imprisonment. How even one of the best of them interfered to regulate private affairs can best be shown by his own words. Quote, I promoted the good of the people by forcibly compelling them to plant maize and poles, and threatening to take away their lands altogether if they did not cultivate them diligently. 
I required the militia colonels to make exact reports about this matter, and thus brought about a great increase in the production of food crops and sugar. I called the militia together for exercise on Sundays and holidays, days which otherwise the people would have spent in idleness and pleasure. Many have complained, but I have never given their complaints the slightest attention, having always followed the system of taking no notice whatever of the people's murmurs. End quote. He describes the Brazilians as vain, but indolent and easily subdued, robust and supporting labor well, but inclined to an inaction, from which only extreme poverty or the command of their superiors could rouse them. They had no education, for the only schools were a few Jesuit seminaries, and no printing press existed. They were licentious, had no aristocracy, were unaccustomed to social subordination, and would obey no authority except the military. Underneath the surface fermented a deep disgust. Even in the seaports the very name of government was hated, and in the interior the people withdrew themselves as much as possible from contact or participation with it. A dull hatred of Portugal and Portuguese spread all classes of natives. In much of the country, the only law was the patriarchal influence of the heads of the landed families, who often exercised power of life and death. Instances are on record where fathers ordered their sons to kill their own sisters when the latter had dishonored the family name. With the death of John V in 1750, the great Marquis of Pombal became prime minister. The enormous energy and activity of this remarkable man revolutionized the administration of Portugal and Brazil. Official corruption was severely punished. Order replaced confusion. Agricultural, industry, and commerce were protected and encouraged. In spite of the threatened exhaustion of the placers, mining flourished. Maranhão and Pará took a new start. The worst monopolies were abolished. The price of sugar rose with the great colonial wars and the adoption of reasonable regulations. Wealth and revenues increased apace, and peace and security were self-guarded. When Pombal fell, after twenty-seven years in power, Brazil's population had risen to two millions, Rio was a city of fifty thousand, and the capital had been transferred there. Bahia had forty thousand, Minas contained four hundred thousand people. The yield of gold was 400,000 carats yearly, and the diamond production 150,000 carats. And finally, Santa Catarina and Rio Grande had been saved from the Spaniards and settled. Pombal made short work of the Jesuits. In 1755 he took away their rights over their Indians, and four years later issued an order for their immediate and unconditional expulsion and the confiscation of their property. Pombal had no favorites. He spared no individuals and no classes in his work of ruthlessly concentrating all power in the crown. But he built a Frankenstein, of which he himself was the helpless victim the moment his old master died. Unwittingly he prepared the way for the triumph of the ideas of the French Revolution both in Portugal and Brazil, and his most beneficent measures were the most fatal to the permanence of his despotic system. Commercial prosperity gave the Brazilian people resources. The impartial administration of law gave them some conception of civic pride and independence. The encouragement of education, small as it was, helped start the intellectual movement which spread over the wilds of Brazil and liberal principle then fermenting in Europe. 
Immediately upon his fall in 1777, the Portuguese government reverted to most of the old abuses, but the economic impulse did not at once die out. Pombal had not only expelled the Jesuits, but had taken effective measures against enslaving the Indians. The latter separated themselves from the whites, and miscegenation largely decreased. On the other hand, the importation of Negro slaves had been continued on a large scale throughout the 18th century, and the proportion of blacks in the mining and sugar districts had increased. Intermixture with Negroes was stimulated by the seclusion of the white women. The young men often took mistresses from among the slaves, and these unions sometimes subsisted after legitimate marriage. The system of double menages, however, decreased as manners became more liberal, and opportunities for social intercourse between the sexes increased. The more energetic Brazilians acquired the rudiments of learning in the Jesuit schools, and a few fortunate youths were sent to the university at Coimbra in Portugal. In the early decades of the 18th century, societies for the discussion of literacy and scientific questions were established in Rio and Bahia, in the centers of population little groups of scholars began to gather who surreptitiously obtained the writings of french and english political philosophers suddenly in the latter half of the century a dazzling literacy outburst occurred its seat was not in rio the political nor Bahia, the ecclesiastical capital nor yet in pernambuco the cradle of the nationality but in ouro preto the chief place of the mining province of Minas, twenty days' journey on muleback from the coast, and among a rude and unlettered population. Within a few years appeared six of the foremost poets of the Portuguese language. The lyrics, Gonzaga, Claudio, Silva Alvanegro, and Alvarengo Peixoto, and the epics, Basilio de Gama and Santa Rita Durao. He who writes the songs of a people rather records their history than influences it. The writings of the Minas lyric poets are the best documents extant on the character of the Brazilians of the colonial period. They clearly reveal that culture was only at its beginnings, that patriotism and national pride were indefinite and shadowy, that religion was neither dogmatic nor absorbing, that polite society had not come into being, and that the intellectual element entered little into the relations of the sexes. The independence of the United States suggested to a few Brazilians the possibility of freeing their country from Portugal. In 1785, a dozen Brazilian students at Coimbra formed a club for this purpose, and one of them wrote to Thomas Jefferson, then minister to France, asking American aid. Jefferson was interested, but answered that nothing could be done until the Brazilians themselves had risen in arms. A like impulse was working in the minds of the poets and their friends at Ouro Preto. A childlike conspiracy was formed whose object was to found a republic with San John del Rey as capital and Ouro Preto as the seat of a university. A few practical men listened to the plans of the conspirators, probably with a view of turning a disturbance to account in preventing the government from putting into effect an obnoxious gold tax then being threatened. Among those led into the inner circle was a young sergeant named Tiradentes. He undertook the task of fomenting an uprising among the troops, but before anything practical had been done, the whole thing had been given away to the authorities. The conspirators were arrested and taken to Rio, 
where the frightened governor instituted a formal and elaborate trial and took a fearful vengeance upon the helpless boys and poets poor tiradentes being without powerful connections was hanged and quartered his memory is now revered in brazil as that of the first martyr to independence and the precursor of the republic the gentle claudio hanged himself in prison after having been tortured into a confession implicating his friends gonzaga and alvarengo with several others were banished to africa republican and separatist ideas had however made no headway among the brazilian masses brazil's independence was to come by the force of circumstances and not by any deliberate national effort and for a republic she was destined to wait a century more End of section 35